Curtain Call, the show where we go behind the curtain with the stars of the culture wars. I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and today we are joined by Bettina Arndt. This week we are joined by Bettina Arndt, a true Australian icon, famed for being Australia's first sex therapist. She's also an author, a political opinion commentator. She was a talkback show radio host and is, of course, an activist for men's rights in an increasingly hostile landscape. Bettina, welcome to Curtain Call. Thank you, Alexandra. Very nice to be with you. Well, look, I often hear you introduced as a controversial figure in Australian politics, but when I was looking at your, particularly your recent career, that seems to be a little bit bewildering considering that most of your commentary is basically mainstream Australian uh, comments that you hear everywhere across the street. So uh, <laughs> yep. as far as I can tell, controversial seems to be synonymous with conservative or basically anything that's not far left radical uh, commentary. Do you think controversial is a fair label for what you're doing now? I mean, that's a very interesting point um, because I would regard my views as totally mainstream. I, I, I mean, if I go out into a supermarket, men and women will come up to me and say, I totally agree with what you're doing, what you're saying. Uh, I know that for decades, uh, I've had the support of the majority of people on most of the opinions I'm expressing. Uh, and that's the, the great irony that the people who are describing me as controversial are outsiders. They're the ones who are pushing a particular what I would regard as anti-male narrative on our culture. They're the, they're the divisive ones. Um, and I think I'm representing the quiet Australians. But we're, we're far too quiet these days. That's the trouble. Well, I tell you what, when you're out in the regions where I am or anywhere basically that's not inner city Melbourne or inner city Sydney or any of Canberra, you don't hear these radicalised uh, political opinions anywhere. That's not mainstream culture at all. So I'm surprised that our politicians are leaning into it. But what we are hearing, particularly online, is things like gender traitor. And I get it, you get it, we hear it a lot. And it's strange because gender doesn't have an ideology. There's no specific set of political opinions for a gender. So I think what they really mean is that you're a gender to feminist ideology, particularly third and fourth wave. Uh, do you think that the far left and this feminist group are frightened of women like yourself who are powerful and successful without the help of social politics? Yes. Well, what's particularly interesting for me is, um, I, I mean, as many people probably know, I was cancelled last year, essentially. Um, I, there was a concerted attempt to wipe me out by major sectors of the media. This is after I was I was given an honours award for which for promoting gender equity through advocacy for men. 
And I do acknowledge that was clearly a, a red flag to the bull. Um, I was that's not in vogue. You can't do that now. That's not allowed. <laughs> well, you know, that's what I believe I do. I'm promoting gender equity. I, I believe in a level playing field, men and women should have equal treatment. That's why I was a feminist 40 years ago, because I felt there were many areas where women didn't were disadvantaged compared to men. And but when that level playing field even up. Uh, and it became really obvious that the agenda now was to advantage women at the expense of men. I'd had enough, and I started increasingly writing about this and writing about things from a male perspective. And uh, and I then absolutely went against the agenda that was being promoted uh, by most of our mainstream um, media. I mean, what's been terrifying for me, having worked in the media most of my life, is see how it's been absolutely captured by the left and by feminism. Uh, and anybody who presents a different view is consistently criticised and marginalised. I mean, just an extraordinary thing how they've managed to get out of step with what ordinary people think. And, and this is, I mean, years ago, I was working in the for the Sydney Body Herald. I was actually put in there to create a bit of diversity. Uh, the editor at the time felt that, you know, the inmates were running the asylum, <laughs> which has, of course, happened increasingly ever since. Uh, but they wanted to introduce some diverse voices, and that's what was my job. And I remember I was writing a story about um, the choices of most ordinary Australian mothers when it came to caring for their children. And the evidence was really clear that most mums want to be, if they can, want to be home with their kids when they're their babies when they're very young. They'd much rather care for their children themselves, at least part-time in those early years. Um, and this, this editor emphatically refused to believe this research. And she said, none of my friends think that. Because um, she and all her very ambitious friends in journalism had put their children into childcare really early. And they were absolutely promoting that sort of agenda. Uh, and they hated it that I was challenging that and they hated it, the fact that I was saying most people, most mums in Australia don't think like you do. And, and I had a real struggle to get that sort of thing published. And that's been the story of my life for the last 30 decades. 30 yes, decades, well, three decades, <laughs> three decades, yeah. Yes, but when the left aren't trying to cancel you or silence you, they are threatening you. And I know that myself and other women online, we get death threats every week. That's how bad the conversation has now become in Australian politics. It's frightening. But uh, I'm going to say that uh, your career has been spent, particularly your early career, uh, exploring the deeply intimate relationships between the genders. And so what I was interested to ask you is why do you think aspects of modern politics refuse to admit that men and women are different and that they might want different things out of their employment and choose different types of careers? Is it just a rehash of Marxism changing the class war to a gender war, or is it something else? Oh, I think that's absolute uh, feminist ideology that they they don't that, you know it's in they wanted to argue that we're all the same that when 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 women go in the workforce when when the opportunities for women opened up they we would behave exactly like men would uh, or do and I mean it's been. I think very disappointing for them that we don't behave like men do. Uh, I mean, the, the classic, of course, concerns 
the sort of jobs women do, the sort of choices women make around their work lifestyle balance. There was a there's a wonderful woman called Catherine Harkham in Britain who uh, was a, a bureaucrat, a, 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 you know, a sociologist who'd done a lot of work on on employment of women, and she's working in some big bureaucracy in Britain, and she realised what was happening in Britain. This was uh, 30 years ago, I think, um, was that. Um, you know, women who had the opportunity to work full time, they weren't all choosing it. And in fact, this big rush into the workforce that was expected by the feminists when um, the barriers came down against women's participation wasn't happening. Women were making very difficult, different decisions. The majority of women were choosing to structure their working lives around caring for their children. There was a small, you know, a small group of women who were very career oriented and a small group of women who wanted to stay home full time. I mean, there was a these different patterns and she started publishing this and got you know I mean she wrote a really influential article about myths in, in terms of female employment and was absolutely taken on by the feminists and I in fact at one stage I'd been writing a lot about her work and and um, John Howard brought her out to Australia and just she was taken around the, the public service to try to convince them that the agenda they were promoting wasn't the, necessarily the one that, we, that ordinary women were, were going to follow. Um, but, you know, there are numerous, numerous examples of this where it's ideological. They don't want to believe. They want to believe that we will behave exactly like men do, and we don't. And when they come across a woman who does behave like they wanted, like I am in IT, I was, I did engineering. I'm supposed to be exactly the woman they want. They come and attack us if you don't subscribe to the feminist narrative. So it's not just about doing what they ask. You have to subscribe to the whole portfolio of ideas, or you are not the, the not the right sort of women. Yeah. Uh, but in the modern Me Too hypergenderized political uh, political sphere, do you think that's damaging the social relationships between men and women? Oh, I think we're living in increasingly dangerous times. Uh, I mean, I worry terribly about the world young men are, gr are growing up and having to face, growing up into and having to face. Um, I, you know, my one of my particular passions has been what's happening on Australian campuses, where universe, where feminist activists have bullied universities into setting up. What are really kangaroo courts? There are regulations on almost all Australian universities for adjudicating rape. They've usurped criminal law uh, to set up systems whereby unknown, unmonitored university officials are making decisions to derail yet accused young men's de degrees, stealing their degrees, stealing something that's worth sometimes hundreds hundreds of thousands of dollars, or at least tens of thousands of dollars, uh, years of this man's efforts uh, without proper investigation, with no due process, without access to lawyers. And I've had a steady stream of young men coming to me for the last well, five or six years now um, who have been accused and, and investigated by these university committees. Absolutely disgraceful what is going on here. And I went out and started speaking out about this on Australian campuses, and of course got howled down. And uh, you know, the riot squad was needed to protect me and my audience at Sydney University. And I mean, fascinating when you confront that sort of um, you know, this is a system that was set up 
in a relatively secret way and they don't want it exposed and they did their darndest to stop me speaking publicly about it and in fact the whole media pile on last year was orchestrated by an end rape on campus activist who's determined to stop me from talking about what's happening on our campus. So now that's just one tiny example of what's happening to young men accused of sexual assault on campus. And of course, well, what we're, can I just say, sorry, Alexander, I mean, what yeah, I'm really yeah. concerned about is the, the current Canberra um, manufactured, orchestrated campaign in Canberra. And note what is happening there. The, the subtext there is we want independent inquiries. What is an independent inquiry? It's a kangaroo court. The whole purpose of that exercise is to do what we've done at our universities to get more men convicted of rape. That's what they want. The feminists are really unhappy uh, that under our current system, they claim we're not getting enough convictions when it comes to rape. Uh, women who are, uh, are claiming to have been raped. And in fact, they constantly lie about those statistics. Uh, in fact, convictions for rape have gone up every year in Australia, and it's been treated extremely seriously by a criminal justice system. And the feminists are absolutely fudging the stats when it comes to sh showing what's happening there. Um, but what we are trying, what we're seeing in camera is an attempt to make the whole every man who's accused of rape in Australia be subject not to our criminal law system, which at least to some extent protects his due process rights, but have him taken away to some independent inquiry uh, where who God only knows who will make a decision on a, on the basis of a lower standard of proof, the balance of probabilities, as to whether he's guilty or not. We're watching this happen, people. This is happening on our watch, and we have to stand up to it. Well, this is what happens when you weaponize the law and monetize victimhood. You end up with a, a complete bastardization of what's supposed to be equality under the law. That's not what feminists want. That's not what these activists want. They are trying to use this uh, discussion as a way of furthering their own activist careers, and that is damaging. Uh, our fundamental legal system. Um, I'm just going to flip to this question, which is how close do you think that Australia is to having in, an institutionalised system of kangaroo courts instead of an actual proper legal system? Well, as I, as I said, we have it already at, at our universities. Uh, we're seeing this big push to try to get it accepted uh, as a standard way of dealing with these issues. Um, uh, well, the, the, I, I, I mean, it was sorry. Just Alexander, what 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 concerned me in this recent debate is the number of lawyers, the number of eminent people who bought in and said, "Yes, good idea. Let's have an independent inquiry into Christian Port, the, the accusations about Christian Porter." I mean, give me a break. The police of this is a historic rape case uh, where the woman herself decided she didn't want to proceed, where the parents felt it wasn't appropriate for her to proceed. There was real concerns about her mental health and whether she these these um, this allegation could be based on incidents she she might have manufactured, she might have that might have come out of um, therapy um, designed to elicit memories that actually never existed, um, all of that, and yet we have these 
you know, significant members of our legal fraternity joining this argument and saying, yes, independent inquiries are a good idea. I mean, this is really scary. Well, let's just flip back a couple of years. We were talking about Canberra. Before all this got well out of control, we had Malcolm Turnbull stepping out during the whole Barnaby Joyce thing and came out with the bonking ban. Now, a lot of people rolled their eyes because, of course, a lot of people meet their spouses in the workplace and really most people couldn't care less whether politicians are shagging each other. It's not, it's not interesting to us. We don't care as long as they do their job. But yep. did that signal to you that perhaps this kind of agendered sexual politics was about to enter the mainstream? That, I think that was one um, point where it became clear what the agenda was. But this, going, this has been part of a, a campaign that's been going on for years and years and years. I mean, I'm, I'm, one, one of the things that intrigues me is the, the, one of the aspects of the feminist agenda is to rein men in. Uh, I always love the fact that the, the, su- we the suffragettes... We do that anyway. We don't need help from feminists to do that. Men no, no, but they want, no, but they want to rein in male sexuality. I mean, this antagonism to normal, lusty male sexuality is something that's always really bothered me. Um, and the suffragettes back, you know, over a, well, what is it, well over a century ago uh, had a slogan, uh, votes for women, chastity for men. And at least they made it very clear what their agenda was, which was about, um, you know, reining in men in, not allowing them to get away with their tomcatting ways, not allowing men to get away with having affairs, whatever it was. And that has been part of, you know, each wave of feminism has had elements of that. Um, second wave feminism, we had the mad Andrea Dworkin, who was, had this ferocious <laughs> attack on pornography, you know, and she regarded all intercourse as violence towards women. Um, uh, and demonising, you know, the, there was a lot of discussion around objectification of women's bodies and I mean this constant sexual theme that anything where men seem to be enjoying themselves sexually was denigrated. Do you remember, I don't know whether you remember, there was this wonderful incident where um, Macquarie, I think Macquarie Banker, um, there was a live cross for financial news from, I don't know, a television channel. And this poor guy was caught looking at his computer in the background of this discussion about whatever, you know, the latest um, um, finance figures. And he was looking at some, celebrity, naked photo of a celebrity, and he was shamed around the world. I mean, what the hell? He's looking at a a woman who had clearly chosen to display her body, and he's appreciating it. This is why you have offices and why we don't work from home, because it's only increasing the uh, accidental uh, things uh, that's COVID has really brought but, that to the fore. I think, but, but, but I mean that 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 theme of um, denigrating men who are sexual is is a really worrying theme, and, and all of this ties in with that. I mean, look at the whole sexual consent regulations. This is about clearly about um, putting women firmly in charge of whether this sexual interaction is going to be regarded as lawful and putting all the responsibility for misbehaviour on the shoulders onto men. So what we have is a situation where any 
intake of alcohol. I mean, if she's in, intoxicated, what does intoxicated mean? They never define how many glass. You know, when, when we put a woman behind the wheel, we define how many glasses of wine, what alcohol level is is, is going to be that she re, she is regarded as being intoxicated. When it comes to sexual interactions, we're not defining that. We're simply saying any when a couple has been drinking, he is always responsible and the interaction is always rape. I mean, Joe Biden, who's ferocious on this stuff, said drunk sex is rape, is rape, is rape. Uh, he's got a real bee in his bonnet about reigning in male sexuality um, People may not know, Joe Biden was the person who was responsible for setting up the kangaroo courts on American universities. And under the Trump administration, there's been a, a little bit of a wind up. There's been some reforms because there there have been hun, literally hundreds of judgments uh, against American universities for failing to pr protect due process rights of males accused in these American kangaroo courts. And the Trump administration introduced some reforms to that to protect these young men a little bit more. And Biden is promising to, it's already started the process of winding these back. He doesn't want fair treatment at all for accused men on American campuses. And funnily enough, in Australia, we have we have a regulator, a regulatory body called um, TEXA, and that is the body that's supposed to be controlling the way our universities behave. There's an end rape on campus activist on that TEXA committee that writes their regulations and writes and issues their, you know, they, they release re regular documents telling the universities how to, how to run their kangaroo courts. And this woman has been responsible for writing a lot of that material. And recently she was celebrating the, the, the Biden uh, election uh, and say, well, we can wind back our due process reforms here too. I mean, they, they, don't want, they don't want money or fairness. No, they don't want any of those things. But we often no. hear that this whole activist thing is meant to be about empowering women in their place of work and where they're learning. But as a young woman in the workforce, when I entered the workplace, I was able to enter it as just another person. I was in a male-dominated industry but made no difference. No one stood over me. No one tried to stop me. I was hosting, because I was at the top of the office, I was hosting one-on-one -on -one meetings with any and all of my employees. But in this new age, they've now brought in this demand where women, even if they're the superior of their male staffers, they have to be chaperoned through meetings to protect them apparently from sexual assault. And also, and I presume this is more the real reason, to protect their male colleagues from false accusations. So how is this helping women in the workforce if they're being reduced to being chaperoned as if it's, you know, three or 400 years ago? Yeah. Well, of course, this is the, uh, I mean, this is the, uh, the own goal, if you like, of the, <laughs> what the feminists have been up to. I mean, they've really damaged women prospects in the workplace, I feel. Uh, because no man, I, mean, I think a man who, if, he, if you were in a small business and you had a choice of employing a fit, an attractive young woman or a young man, you'd be crazy to take the young woman these days. Uh, we're absolutely setting up every man uh, who's in a position of authority for false allegations if he in any way um, annoys her. You know, the boss who says, I don't like your, you know, the way you're handling yourself in the workplace. The boss who says, I, you know, I'm not happy with your work. Whatever he does, we, he can then face a false, false allegation. And 
the chances are, you know, that will, it's very difficult, he said, she said, accusation like that. And there is a very big chance a man could lose his job as a result of that. Now, why would we be, it would people employ women in that circumstance? I think women have proved themselves to be extremely dangerous. And we've done ourselves a huge disservice um, through me, you know, hashtag me too, and this whole push for defining normal interactions between women, men and women as sexual harassment. Well, this might amuse you. Uh, I pulled this off Twitter the other day, and it was a trending uh, tweet from Julian Burnside, another one of these lawyers you like to talk about. And he said, What I really don't understand is why is it so radical in 2021 to stand up for women having equal rights? The right wing press is on the attack, but why? To which hundreds of women replied, we, we do have equal rights. Where's this mantra coming from that women somehow don't have equal rights in Australia? It's not the third world. We do have equal rights here, at least in print. Of course we do. We have legislated equal rights in any number of areas, and we've had them for decades. Um, I mean, this is about manufacturing issues uh, that don't, aren't relevant to ordinary people uh, but suit the feminist agenda. And some of it is about demonising men. Um, so some of it is about, you know, changing the way we operate in terms of our law. I mean, and, and you know, this has nothing to do with what, what ordinary people want. No. Well, just before we move on to your new work in the uh, men's rights form, this is a particular topic that worries me because I'm watching a generation grow up beneath me, or two generations really, and I've watched them online and their mental development, and this is not just the helicopter generation of parents who look after them. This is a generation where schools and legislators have said, oh, it's too stressful for kids to have exams. Everyone gets a participation award. And so these children, they're never being allowed to fail at anything, anything that matters when they are young. And so they are completely emotionally underdeveloped when they're entering both the workforce and adult relationships when they grow up. And so my concern is what's going to happen to the relationships between men and women when these kids start to engage in sexual relationships when they're older and they break down and they fail? Do you think this will lead to an increase in violence between men and women or just a dysfunctional society as far as social relationships go? I mean, I think we're already seeing a lot of men choosing to opt out of relationships with women, rightly. I mean, I, I do think that well, one of the things I've been observing for years is the fact that we've seen, had now generations of um, families who've been through family breakup and where, you know, young men are growing up watching their dads being turfed out of the house, watching their dads be, you know, often in situations where there's parental alienation and they're told their dads are dreadful people. I mean, not that there are lots of families who have good divorces, who do their best to look after the children and care for them properly in that situation, but we have a significant group now who get captured by our appallingly antagonistic um, family law system. And the results are really tragic. We have so many young men growing up young children growing up in families with that, where they have no access to their fathers. And that's sadly st still the norm, that most fathers will not be allowed to be proper children, proper fa fathers to their children after divorce. And in that situation, why would young men think, oh, what a good idea, I'll get married and I'll have children? I mean, when they've watched their dads spend their lives 
in misery because they've been denied contact with their children. Why would men take the risk of doing that? I mean, there's so many areas like this where we have made it very clear to young people that this is a risky business. Relationships are a risky business. Um, and your point about what we are teaching girls, I mean, I it just is so infuriating for me as part of that generation of, I was, you know, one of the um, generation of women who were really benefited from that second wave of feminism, where we were being offered freedoms that we, women hadn't had before. We were allowed to, you know, we didn't have to be chaperoned. We we were given a right to to take risks like men do, to go out and, and, and behave like men. And all of a sudden now we're being treated as total victims and, we, and in need of, of constant protection. That is the most bizarre thing to watch. Uh, why is it that we, women are no longer powerful um, and independent, but are seen as little cripples that need constant protection? Uh, my, so, many, my, so many aspects of what this we've been through in recent decades are just absolutely gobsmacking to my generation, I think. My theory is that the feminists don't really want strong, powerful women who act like men. They want women who they can control for their political purpose. And so they didn't actually want what they were asking for. But yeah. we will now talk about the men too hashtag, which uh, I believe is a reaction to the me too phenomena that has been going on. When did you decide that for personally for yourself that it was time to begin this new phase in your activism to talk specifically um, both for and about men? Is it because you found that men aren't willing to defend themselves on the social stage? Um, well, I, that's when I was working full time as a full time journalist and um, I found that, you know, if you look at who writes about social issues in the, in a newspaper, they're mainly women. I mean, men men usually want to um, talk about, you know, the do politics, economics, whatever, topics that are going to further their career and they see social issues as a sort of soft territory. And so the whole de debate, the whole narrative about the way we conduct our lives socially is written about by women. And it became increasingly obvious to me that that was um, not giving men a fair chance, not never, very rarely was it expressing what, uh, talking about what was happening to men. And this became particularly clear when I started to write about family law. And I'd written a few articles about the whole issue of men losing contact with their children after divorce. Um, and what was very obviously uh, a system where the custodial parent had, and it was usually the mother, of course, was given all the rights. She could move where she liked. She could cut the man off from seeing the children. She could, you know, and nothing, she, there were very little consequences, no matter how badly she treated that father. And a judge wrote to me out of the blue, a retiring family court judge, and he said, you're so right. And he gave me a series of interviews about the mistakes they, he felt had been made in the way fa the family court system had been set up. And I so that's really inspired me. And I, I actually got involved. I was on a number of gov government committees back under the Howard government, representing men, funnily enough. Um, and your point about, you know, don't men stand up for themselves is very true that it, when it comes to family law matters, um, men tend to fight individual battles. The men who could afford to employ expensive lawyers 
and they do their best to achieve some sort of decent outcome and then they you know scurry off and, and keep it all private they very rarely the educated powerful men very rarely want to join a group of men who are perceived as victims and i think i think the women's movement has done a very good job at denigrating men's groups as at you know at presenting any any work for men as something that only you know misfits would get involved in um and the, the, the men who who advocate for the men's groups are often damaged men um you know less educated men men who aren't particularly powerful and you know so i've watched this happen i watched this happening on these committees and that's so that's what really sucked me into this territory and then there are, you know, there have been so many other issues that have developed from that. I mean, domestic violence is the absolute classic one, where, um, you know, this domestic violence industry is um, a, really a propaganda machine designed to demonise men. It started off from a very important place, protecting women who were genuinely at risk of violence in their relationships. And the feminists quickly realised this was their cash cow, that this was this was the apple pie issue that no one dared attack. And they, we've watched them get billions and billions of dollars for domestic violence funding, which totally denies women's role in, domestic, in family violence, which does nothing to protect children from violent mothers, and which offers absolutely no protection from men who are living with violent women. And at least a third of that, we have our official statistics showing at least a third of the victims of domestic violence are male. Uh, and there's, there's nowhere for them and to go with their children if they're trying to escape a violent woman. Well, that brings us to the website called Mothers of Sons and its new campaign, They Don't Speak For Me. Just for our listeners who may not know, Mothers of Sons is a community of women who fight for the men in their life, sharing stories of miscarriages of justice. It is a group that showcases the male victims of an overly politicised legal system that prejudices against men. And I'm just going to read a paragraph from the website to introduce it for our, our viewers. The website says, Women need no evidence to make accusations of violence or sexual abuse that deprive men of their children, their homes, their careers and futures. Some of us have spent our life savings protecting sons from false accusations of sexual assault, paying a huge mental and financial toll to prove the charges had no substance. Other sons are experiencing discrimination in the workplace or in educational institutions where advancement can be based upon gender rather than merit. Some face Me Too accusations where unproven allegations can undermine a lifetime's achievement and cause loss of career and reputation. Some of our sons are victims, physically and emotionally abused by their partners, yet they are offered no protection or support. So, Bettina, where does this They Don't Speak For Me campaign come in? Well, the Mothers and Sons um, group... Um, <laughs> Which I'm, you know, I mean, I'm helping a lot behind the scenes with that. Uh, I know some of these women came together as, because they originally contacted me, and I th thought when they when they came up with this idea of getting together as a group, I thought it was a fantastic idea. Um, hopefully, to you know, because these are women, people should believe them, shouldn't they? I mean, we're supposed believe to believe all women. women. We know we've been told that believe yeah. all women. Believe all women, except, except mothers of sons. 
Um, but, you know, it's been very interesting watching them trying to uh, attract public attention and have the mainstream media not interested because they're not the sort of women that, that the media is interested in, you know, fascinating. Um, anyway, that they were watching the whole um, Canberra, recent Canberra rape crisis uh, and the, the way that that is being deliberately used to denigrate our criminal justice system, to imply, to imply what our already biased criminal justice system is not giving women a fair, a fair go. I mean, it's such a joke. These, these mothers' stories of these... I mean, I'll tell you one fascinating story is a, one of the mums there, 18-year-old son was... Uh, well, he was accused of rape on his 18th birthday, and um, oh, just—I hope people will go and have a look at her story. Um, just terrifying for this mother because all of a sudden the police are there, and the the son is taken away, and and it was in you know put in prison for a week while like, before until they managed to get bail for him and so on, and this long process of dealing with the police who clearly saw this boy as guilty, who did everything they possibly could to ignore evidence that would have exonerated this young man, um, and finally, 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 they have this court case where it all came out in court. She was discovered to have DNA from two other men in her vagina on the night in question and not from this young man and was proved to be lying about any number of things in relation to the accusations against him. When that guy, that young man, walked out of that courtroom, the jury stood there clapping him, with, and some of the women had tears in their eyes. And it said it all, that there, it was a, a blinding demonstration of the injustice of our current system, where Women are invariably believed. Any accu rape accusation goes is now pushed through to court uh, once the accusation is made. And the police bend over backwards to believe her and don't listen and don't give him a proper chance for his evidence that supports his case to be given a proper hearing. And uh, it's very scary stuff. Anyway, so the mums in this group... Um, are very aware of what's going on, are really alarmed by the fact that we are seeing this effort, this very public effort to, you know, further wind back um, legal protections for accused men. And so they've started this campaign, They Don't Speak For Me, saying this group of women who are controlling our media now don't speak for ordinary women. And they've put together a, a letter which is on their website, which people can just download and send off to MPs. One of the things that they're worried about, and I've always been worried about, is politicians only ever hear from one side. Uh, this noisy minority group that is controlling our media um, absolutely dominates uh, political discussion as well as public discussion. And we need to speak up. We need to get ordinary people to send in letters. I know people are very, you know, quite don't know quite how to do this. So I think the Mothers and Sons letter is a very good idea. It contains a lot of information about conviction rates in our courts and about the fact that our system is already bending over backwards to protect women. And we don't need further efforts to undermine our criminal justice system. Well, that's a, an amazing project that you've got going on there with those women. 
just to finish up today, we often have a, a light, fun question at the end of Curtain Call, and that's uh, if you could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, oh. who would it be and why? Mm. Anybody at all. Um, I'm terrible at those sort of questions. Uh. There must be someone you want to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. Last week we had Daisy Cousins on TV. She picked a really hot guy. Like, it's not a Tinder date. It's a dinner. <laughs> so, well, I know. I must say, I, I started to think of worthy people, you know. That, but in the end, I mean, I think I'd probably have dinner with a really sexy man. <laughs> I had I had lunch like last week with a man who who wrote to me saying that like twenty years ago he'd written to me about um um. He went to me for advice about his marriage and about sex. And, and he said, I gave him the best advice he's ever received. And he wanted to take me to a lavish lunch, which, which he did. And he was a gorgeous, young, still quite young, sexy man. And so I'll have another date like that. Thank you very much. I think that's the best answer we've had. I'll just take a hot man to lunch. That's great. But very nice being flirted with, you know. Uh, and I, it's always pretty nice for me that you know that as a 70 year old woman that men can still show they find me attractive i won't knock that back no i i wouldn't know that's a that's a great idea well thank you patina art it was absolute pleasure to have you on the show today and all the best with your your new endeavors in this world of political activism for men thank you very much very nice to talk to you alexandra thank you for joining us on curtain call we are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.